empires that are based on injustice uh, are not sustainable. Uh, that's just how also the world worked uh, in nature. I think Omar and myself might never see Palestine be liberate, liberated. Um, being in resistance is in itself an end. It's in, in itself uh, living a life of love which rejects any structures and systems which dehumanize us and others. And I think that's a life worth living. Greetings, my relatives and my people. This is Lila June, your host of Nehije, our Voices Indigenous Solutions podcast. Today we are joined by two beautiful brothers, Omar and Samuel, who work in Jerusalem. Uh, they are both Palestinian, and they work at an organization called Savil, which is a um, Christian organization a uh, Christian Palestinian organization that strives towards theological liberation through instilling the Christian faith in the daily lives of those who suffer under occupation, violence, injustice, and discrimination. And their vision is that local Palestinian Christians, inspired by the life and teaching of Jesus, stand for the oppressed, work for justice, in, and engage in peace building. So Savil has been around for a long time working as a Palestinian organization in Jerusalem uh, at the intersection of many interesting roads um, uh, to, to work for the, the, um, the, the return of indigenous Palestinian peoples to their homelands, which I know is a controversial topic to say the least. Um, but here we are because as a, as a native woman, I have always felt a deep obligation and duty to stand up for Palestinian people, um, which I know is is such a, <laughs> it's only a hard topic to talk about because there's so much PR campaigns to make it complicated, but it's it's actually not that complicated when you really dig into the history. Um, the the occupation of these indigenous lands uh, by what we call Israel you know, is is actually um, from the beginning extremely violent, extremely um, illegitimate, extremely, um, I mean, even just uh, 1948, the first Nakba, when so many people were murdered and kicked out of their homes without any treaty, without any um, resolution, without any just basic peace building. And, and it really, the, the entire, um, foundation ever since Nakba on that 1948 was a foundation of violence. And it sort of paved the way for the violence we see today in 2024. Um, and so we're here about peace. We're here about love. We're here about compassion. We're here about unity. And so um, I actually met Omar when I went to Palestine years ago. Um, and he showed us the abandoned communities where people were forced out at gunpoint in 1948. He showed us the prisons where Palestinian youth were being held, teenagers, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds were being held um, without any due process for supposedly like throwing rocks at tanks or something, but even that wasn't even proven. And um, 
even if it was, these are children, you know, and they were abducted. It's sort of a very documented thing. I'm not making this up. Uh, abducted in the middle of the night and taken to these prisons. Um, he also showed me the walls, you know, the 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 walls that and the checkpoints that Palestinian people have to go through just to get from place to place. Uh, all of their movement is controlled by heavily armed Israeli army. Um, and uh, he also showed me the refugee camps where people are living uh, in, in poverty and who are living there because they were kicked out in 1948 during the Nakba, or the what they call in their language the catastrophe, the Nakba. And so he showed me everything. Um, and uh, this is not to say that I'm uh, uh, not compassionate for the suffering also that uh, Jewish people have gone through and also the suffering that Israeli people have gone through, through also violence that has happened uh, towards them uh, by Palestinians. Um, so I'm not trying to um, say that it's uh, one side or the other, but it is extremely, extremely lopsided. <laughs> we can say that with America giving Israel billions of dollars a year uh, for their army um, and of course, Palestinians having very, very, very little funding. And of course, Gaza being a place that is isolated and people are not allowed to leave without, very, very rarely allowed to leave um, this, this sort of open air prison that we call Gaza. Um, so in any case, uh, that's all to say that um, Omar and I have a, a deep connection in the sense that we've we witnessed each other's struggles. And... Um, and I also love how he took me to the to the Quaker, the Quaker building in in Ramallah, um, and showed me the the Palestinian Christians and how they work through nonviolence and for peace, um, and how they're really holding down the 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 Christian fort. <laughs> and everyone says, you know, uh, how are you Palestinian and Christian? And it's like, well, actually, that's that's where Jesus came from. <laughs> These are the indigenous Christians of the world, the indigenous. Um, the first Christians continuing that lineage. Um, so in any case, um, we'll get into it. I'll stop talking here because I know we're really here to, to to listen from them. So maybe I'll start with you, uh, Omar, uh, from Savil organization in Jerusalem. Um, as a Palestinian man, uh, where are you from? What, what organization or, or what is Savil about to you? And And how have you spent your life as a Palestinian man under occupation. Thank you, Leila, for uh, um, for the introduction and for having us uh, as guests in this podcast. So we really appreciate the invitation. Um, I'm from Jerusalem, uh, the famous city of Jerusalem, city very important for billions of people around the world, Christians, Muslims, and definitely Jews. My family actually has deep roots in Jerusalem, um, according to the family tradition and even our local church tradition. On Pentecost, 13 Christian families became entirely Christian on, uh, on that day. My family's order is number five. We are the fifth family that became Christian on that day. Um, I'm part of uh, an organization called Sabil, which literally means the way, inspired by by the early followers of Jesus Christ. The early followers of Christ were called the people of the way, the people who followed the ways of Jesus. And the way 
um, and the name Sabil also means in Arabic a spring of water. And for us as Christians, Jesus is the life spring of water. Sabil is, is the attempt or the contribution of Palestinian Christians to read and interpret the Bible through our own context as Palestinian Christians. We have a context. We live under military occupation, which is very similar to Jesus who lived under military occupation, under the Roman occupation. Jesus and the Holy Family became refugees when they ran away from Herod, who was um, a tyrant at that time, famous for the killing of the innocents of the children in Bethlehem. And most of the Palestinian people, we are refugees. So what does it mean to read the Bible um, and be a Christian and be faithful to Christ living under occupation? Sadly, also within our general Christian world, there are hundreds of millions of Christians, still a minority within our Christian faith, yet because of their location um, in North America and some parts of Europe, um, Christians who use the Bible to justify our disposition as a Palestinian people. We are sadly aware that the Bible has been misused by so many people around the world to justify the occupation, the dispossession, or the ill-treatment um, of people, especially the people on the margins. So we Palestinians have started Sabil as a way to read the Bible first, to use the Bible as a tool of liberation from the um, from all of the injustices that are taking place in our context, but also to liberate the Bible from the people who are misusing it. I wish we had like a, um, when you ask in your question, what do you do? Um, how's our life? How did we spend our life, you know, in, in Palestine? It's, it's very different. People think that we were born to resist. You know, we are, um, we, we usually have a romantic um, perspective of Palestinians or any people who are resisting the disposition of their own people or standing for the rights of their own communities, that they are people who are riding a horse and riding, I mean, and flying through the dust clouds coming to liberate the people. But it's actually, we had no choice. We were born under occupation. Um, not only, sadly, our generation, and I'm now 43 years old, but also, uh, or the younger generations, but also our older generations. Um, our grandparents lived through Nakbe, and since 1948, we've been living from one disposition to another. And we Palestinians, we have like, you, you have only one out of four different choices. One choice is that you flee. Um, the injustice that's taking place and you become a refugee you, be, you leave your country to a safer place and I don't want to be very judgmental of this position my grandparents took this position when they fled their homes in 1948 to what they thought would be a safer place which also ended up under Israeli occupation and there's now hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Palestinians in Gaza who are fleeing or attempting to flee Gaza to go to a place that is safer. Other categories, if you don't want to flee, then you have a choice that it's somehow you, you try to avoid being in touch with the reality. So you live, you go to work, you go to school, you go to church, but you really don't get involved within your own context. You say that it is, we have a saying that it's you try to over live the occupation. And sadly, we Palestinians have had um, 
over a dozen of empires come through our country in the past 2,000 years. And empires come and empires go. All we have to do is just outlive them. So many people say just hide in the caves, hide in the mountains, hide in your own house, and just avoid the reality. So that's another option we can take. A third option is actually can talk about, you know, it is it's you collaborate with the system. Sadly, every community that is under occupation, we have people um, who decide without being so judgmental, although I'd like to be judgmental about this group of people, but that they collaborate with the system. They find out that there is there's all, always rewards to be to align yourself with the powerful, even if it comes on the cost of betraying your own families. And the fourth decision is you you resist. Now, when you resist, you must be either, first of all, like you're a wonderful person because you're willing to pay the price to defend your um, to defend your community, but also in a way you're stupid because it's usually the people on the margins who are fighting empire. You know, we have no chance against empire. So it's uh, you become like a person who's willing to either sacrifice against all odds or you become somebody who is just reality is not an option. And um, and I think that makes that's the cause of billions of people around the world. And that's why so many people feel um, are, are willing to march with us in the streets of Europe, North America, Latin America, Africa, when they know that the Palestinian cause is a just cause. And regardless of all odds, they appreciate and they admire our naiveness and our foolishness and our stupidity that we are able to overcome. And I, I like um, I like to be at least to um, to be foolish and to be part of the fourth group that is willing to resist. Thank you, Omar. I appreciate that. Um, I can imagine the four options were similar for Native Americans. You know, we have to think about what we're going to do, and you can assimilate and kind of you know like become more like the colonizer which i think we all have to do in a, in some ways um even just the way we dress or the the fact that we go to university or the fact that we it, it's almost impossible not to participate in the system just to exist um uh and i know that my grandfather really went that direction you know really trying to be like the white man as much as he could, God bless him. And and again, there's no judgment there because he had to prove that we were human, uh, as my mother says, and that was the only way to do it in the 1940s. Um, but then that, yeah, so I just see a lot of parallels and I wonder if there's a fifth option or a sixth option. And I'm sure there's, <laughs> you've, you've thought about it your whole life, but um it's also how we resist, right? Within that resistance, there are options, um, which I know you and I talked a little bit about when I was in Palestine, and we even saw firsthand different ways of resisting. Um, and so anyways, that's a whole other conversation. But I like to think that there, there is a fifth option. And one thing that my elders tell me is alliances, 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 because the more alliances you have, the harder it is for them to take you down and just building those alliances, which I hope is what this podcast does and helps with. Um, but anyway, Samuel, please, we'd love to hear your take on that question as well. 
It's uh, it's a question that I answer for different people. Uh, it always change, changes to who I'm uh, talking to. Um, but uh, I, I would say that my father uh, is from the city of Elid, which is known for slaying dragons. It is where uh, St. George, uh, his mother, is from. Uh, so that's kind of the legacy. And even uh, some of my family members claim that we are descendants of St. George, which uh, I neither deny or claim. Um, and Elid is in Palestine? It is in historic Palestine. It is it. uh, it's near the coastal, coastal city of Jaffa. Um, it's next to the uh, city of Tel Aviv, what is called Tel Aviv nowadays. Um, and my family are rooted there for centuries. Um, my uh, grandparents uh, and great-grandparents were known for owning uh, orchards and great fields of agriculture. And in 1948, from uh, a life of prosperity, um, it, they became re internal refugees, and they hid uh, in the Church of St. George. Uh, so St. George is, is a huge uh, character and has an importance for my identity and where I'm from. Um, but my mother comes from uh, Bolton, which is a city next to Manchester in the UK. Uh, but I'm also born and raised in Jerusalem. So I, I'm i still figuring out who I am and where I'm from. Um, but I guess I'm from many different places. Um, and I hold multiple identities at the same time. Um, and to add to that, uh, being born and raised in Jerusalem, I was a minority in terms of where I live in the neighborhood in which I live in. Uh, which is uh, a lot of predominantly Israeli uh, and uh, being Christian. Um, so early on, I had uh, a lot of questions which I did not understand where they were coming from and why they were occurring and why I was asking them and not other people. Um, and that led me to being a part of different initiatives and organizations that are wrestling with those kind of questions, which is belonging. Where do I belong? Why do I not belong? Uh, why do I have a Nakba story and my neighbors have a Holocaust story? Why am I living under a certain rule that allows me or gives me certain rights that other Palestinians don't have? for example, in the West Bank? Why do I feel unsafe in certain areas and feel comfortable in others? And those questions are guided me um, to questions that ultimately came to questions about God and faith and theology. And it allowed me a freedom to explore these questions in a way that I didn't feel constrained in a sense, which later on I encountered. Um, but it, it allowed me to explore these questions from certain experiences my skin felt. So uh, I remember going to school and uh, meeting many missionaries coming from North America or Europe, trying to convert me into Christianity. 
And then when finding out that I'm Palestinian, assuming that I was Muslim before, or assuming that um, that I hate my Muslim brothers and sisters, um, and that the Nakba was actually a, the will of God. Uh, so those questions allowed me to to really explore my identity and that relationship to theology, um, which is faith-seeking understanding. Um, and that led me to focusing on Palestinian liberation theology uh, and uh, the questions of not does God exist, but where are you, God? For how long are you allowing the suffering to continue? So when I was exploring these questions in, in my university uh, time, I was in a completely different uh, place than other of my um, classmates. And I found my voice uh, with Palestinian liberation theology. I found uh, the what bell hooks lib theory as liberatory practice. I, I found healing uh, through liberation theology maybe in the books but it's definitely something that i live by um and then that it allowed me to explore also the idea of um connecting back to uh, a past and to a culture and to a being that is constantly being disrupted and violated so that allowed me to connect to my grandparents it allowed me to connect to how palestinians uh view olive trees how we view saint george which can be a symbol of the empire can be a symbol of control and oppression but can actually also be a symbol of unity liberation mm -hmm. um so those were kind of the questions and and, and circles that i was involved with right. um, and that's where i'm from as well Oh, thank you so much, Samuel. And I think that's a big question. So many people ask throughout history, where are you, God? <laughs> um, and for me, what I've what I've learned, because my father asked that question, he became an atheist very young after his mother passed away from from cancer when he was only 11 years old. And he became an atheist that day because he said, if there, there, either there is a God and he let my mom die or there or there is no God. And, um, and so growing up, I saw him suffer with that. And interestingly, it gave me the wisdom that I didn't want to suffer that way. And I've always had a strong faith in the creator, although I have questioned it at times. And, um, but, um, I found, uh, what I, what my elders finally told me was, yes, there's creator, but there's also coyote. <laughs> there's also this trickster spirit. There's also this spirit that's trying to play god trying to enslave and so to not blame the creator for things that that coyote does and then the question is well why would creator make coyote if coyote can hurt and it's like creator didn't make coyote to hurt coyote is one of the spirits that was here at the beginning to be a guardian to be a a loving being and creator gives us power to live which we can use to harm or to or to heal and so creator didn't ever intend for this, um, but he has full power. But if, if we don't learn from our mistakes, from our free will, 
making these mistakes and realizing that, oh, we don't want to do that, then I don't know if that's really good either. If creator just turns us all into robots of like, you're going to do this and you're going to do that and everything's going to be perfect. Um, and it'll be a perfect world, you know, but I think it's like, no creator gave us this free will because we're not slaves. We are free to both harm and to heal. So I keep Sometimes I tell people we can't kick the dog and then be angry at God that the dog got kicked, you know? Um, but anyways, um, I really appreciate also your bi-nationality. I too am half Dene and mostly European. So I have both too. And, and I, I, I love what you said of like these missionaries were coming and trying to convert you, but you were, you were already Christian. <laughs> like, I think that's, is that what you were saying? I think they were assuming um, right. that they that they have something that I don't, uh, or they wanted to convert me to a certain form of Christianity that they had, but they were surprised that my ancestors are the ones that converted them. Yeah, <laughs> crazy, eh? Well, you know, you and you two and I are speaking on January twenty second, two thousand twenty four. Um, it's 10.43 a.m. here in Gallup, New Mexico, and it's 7.43 p.m. in Palestine. We are speaking, obviously, in a time when uh, the, the, the destruction is almost too much to even utter. It's just insane. It makes me want to cry right now. But we have over 300,000 residential units in Gaza destroyed by Israeli airstrikes. We have almost 400 schools damaged by Israeli airstrikes. We have over 200 mosques or places of worship damaged or destroyed. Um, over half of the hospitals in Gaza have been uh, destroyed. Um, where we have over 100 ambulances <laughs> have been destroyed. Bakeries have been destroyed. We're approaching at least 25,000 people dead in Gaza, um, nearly 10,000 children, over 6,000 women. Not to say the men are not important. They're innocent too. They weren't part of the violent Hamas affronts or anything. Um, we're talking about innocent people being just blown up. We're talking about um, over a million women and girls displaced. Um, we're talking about two mothers dying every hour is the latest statistic in Gaza. And as an American woman, although I am Native American, I am indigenous, I still pay taxes to this monstrosity of what we call the USA and the military that goes around the world just acting like the police of the world and usually for the purposes of extraction of some sort of valuable resource, which by the way, there is a very valuable oil reserve in Palestine, which we're approaching, you know, oil is everything these days for countries. Um, so I'm telling you things you already know, but I'm telling the listeners that we, we are having this interview in a historic time that is just unimaginable 
And um, my tax dollars as an American woman are directly funding this assault on humanity. Um, And so it's the least I could do to do a little podcast, but we're going to get into some things of how, if at all, we can actually help. Um, Because I know a lot of people around the world are just watching people be, um, and and you guys are in the West Bank. And for the listeners, you know, who don't know, um, Palestine is kind of in two pieces um, right now. One is Gaza, which is all the way to the uh, west, western coast of of the area, um, which is a tiny little strip with two mil over two million people there. If you've ever been to Taos, New Mexico, which is the tiny little town that I'm from, Gaza is smaller than Taos, New Mexico. Take the smallest town in the U.S., and that's how big Gaza is. And over two million people were living there. So it's it's a place where all the people who were kicked out of what we now call Israel were crammed into this little tiny area. But there is this island in the more eastern area, which even though it's more eastern, it's called the West Bank, um, where Ramallah is and arguably the life quality of life is a little better, not much better than in Gaza. Um there's a little bit more freedoms and that's where um, Omar and Samuel are, are speaking from now and Jerusalem as well. So anyways, that's just to paint the picture. Um, but um, what is the most important message you'd like to share with the world at this time, Omar, uh, given your situation? I mean, it's the whole country, um, historical Palestine. So it's Palestine, Israel. That includes West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem, and Israel um, is is almost the size of Maryland. Um, so it's just it's a small piece of land with close to 12, 13 million people living on it, both Arabs and Jews. Gaza is maybe like one third of Rhode Island. That's how small it is for people who are not aware Um how small Gaza is. I mean, it's so. So when we, we when we put these numbers and compare them to numbers of bigger countries with bigger populations, I think the U.S. is like close to three hundred million or a little bit over than three hundred million citizens in it. So when we say like there's um, close to thirty thousand Palestinians who have been killed, we're talking about huge numbers of people who have been killed um, if we compare the population between Gaza and the U.S. Um, uh, With the war in Gaza, we have three times the civilians that were killed between the war between Russia and Ukraine. And everybody was speaking about the the human rights violation and, and, and the crimes that were being committed in this war. So the country is just, part of it is, some of it, it's it's very scary to tell you the truth. I think I was reading for um, the situation today in Palestine. I think in the West Bank and inside inside Israel, somebody was just saying that it is on average a Palestinian is less than ten minutes reading the news. We got used to it; became part of the norm. Sadly, it's like how the war in Russia um, and Ukraine with what's taking place in Sudan, different conflicts around the world becomes the norm. 
that there is a war and that's just we're used to it and it becomes part of life. And it's amazing how we human beings, we can get used to things that are messed up. And that is more scary because it is it's when somebody is resisting, you're resisting because that's the situation that you're going through in your country is not what you think is what ought to be or how life should be. And the moment that you stop resisting is when this becomes just part of normal life. So we as human beings, every time we acquaint ourselves or we become comfortable with a reality that, that sucks, you know, whether it is domestic violence, whether it is it's, uh, um, 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 human trafficking, whether it is it's with, uh, with uh, substance abuse or whatever we do, or with the presence of tyrants who control us, we become... Um, uh, we are no the best way is not to get for somebody the best way not to resist is that you get used to the situation that this is part of the norm and we as human beings it's in our DNA and it's our in genetics is to get too used to to a terrible situation that's that's uh, that's the biggest tactic. It's not suppressing us, but it is somehow stealing our humanity or getting our bodies used to do it. And in a way, it's a double-edged sword. Because in a way, you feel that you're losing lots of your humanity and you're becoming like somehow like willingly or or at least you become submissive or accepting the corrupt system that you live under. But on the other side, which is very interesting, it gives you somehow like steadfastness. You become immune to it and you become stronger because it is it's whatever atrocities that are being committed against you and your people, it becomes it's in a way it is it's unable to defeat you because you become indifferent to it. And sadly, it makes it for somebody to continue to use violence and they need to feed more into the cycle of violence and make the violence much more greater so that we get this initial shock. Um, of the violence. Life in Palestine is not good. Life in the world is not good in general, because we who are the majority of the world, the majority populations, we're very silent. We're not the troublemakers that we should be. You know, it is they're, they're, they're hitting us in every aspect of our li livelihoods, whether it is with poverty, whether it is it's with um with stealing natural resources or whether it is demolishing and ruining our planet, um, turning it into a, um, a garbage um, uh, a garbage site, planet Earth, where so many species are being endangered and we're losing, we're losing so much of the richness of, um, of the world, we become... Uh, you know, you were mentioning that it is, it's at least within the, or my understanding of the Christian faith, it's not that there is, we don't have a coyote, we don't have the devil, although like it is, it's, we, we, we write about it, some of the churches and some of the theologians, they talk about Satan and so on. For us, it's, um, there is nothing called darkness, it's just the absence of light. Um, there's, um, there's light, and if you don't have light, you have darkness. If there isn't something that is evil, it's just there's no goodness. And I think we are losing the light of the world. We're losing the salt of the world, the things that make make things different. 
So it is it's our presence, and you need light because it's it's a substance. It's a um, um, you need salt because it is also substance. Because it's with substance you make a difference, and with it, with the lack of material, we become uh, we we ourselves become the substance that um, that greed feeds on. Right. Oh, thank you so much, Omar. I mean, the 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 Christian doctrine that there's there's what they call Christian Zionism of that somehow when when Israel reclaims its space, Jesus will return. You know, and this is just so intense you know because i know for a fact jesus would never ever ever say yes kill all these palestinians so that i can come back <laughs> like he was palestinian you know arguably so it's just refreshing to hear your theology and your indigenous christianity if you will uh the ways in which you're seeing the world um and yeah i could go on but i'll i'll pass it to you samuel the same question what is the most important message you'd like to share with the world at this time? The world, it's, it's a big, it's a whom in the world, what, where in the world. Um, there's a few things I think I'd like to say. Number one, um, Palestinians have been warning about something like this happening since the beginning of when Sabil was founded. Uh, the the situation was not sustainable, and it it is a, a ticking time bomb, and it's exploded, and it will explode again if things are not um, if there isn't transformation on a spiritual, legal, moral sense. But Palestinians have been warning the world about this, and it's perhaps got into the attention of the world uh, because of so many children and people dying in Gaza. And the scale of what's happening in Gaza is catastrophic on a global sense. This is not only catastrophic to us in Palestine, but this is a catastrophe for the global family, the global community. This is a failure of every country, church, business, humanitarian authority, moral authority, that this has is happening, is happening. And it is happening now more violent than ever, but it's been happening for more than 75 years. So in order to really learn and seek transformation, we have, we have to look at the context of what is happening here, where is it coming from? Um, but again, Palestinians have been have been saying to the world, have been visitors who've come to Palestine, have we've tried our best to show that this situation is unsustainable. And um I feel like the banality of evil has has allowed that to happen. The evil has become so ordinary. Uh and I'm shocked. And this is also towards myself as well. Um the second thing is, you said it's a historic moment. We're living in historic times. And I agree. This is a 
a milestone—not uh, a milestone, but a key historical moment within Palestinian history. You have 1948, 1967, 87, and so on. And now we have 7th of October, 2023, and who knows when it will end. And this is a time where history is going to judge us. We're going to see who has spoken up during this time, who hasn't, who has been complicit, who has resisted. And the actions you do currently, as of we're speaking right now, and for the next um, few months, few years, who knows how long this can be, will determine how people will react, will interact with you. These are historic times, and we must have historic action. And uh, when once the guns are, are stopped to be shot, once the bombs stop falling, and, and people who were, remain silent during the Gaza genocide will come to us and say, we want to help, we will remember they did not help when it was happening. When we asked for people to stop this genocide, they did not. So in terms of the global repercussions of what is happening here, it is immense. Our children will judge us and how we have been acting during these times as we are speaking right now. The organizations, the churches that we are a part of, we will be judging the relevancy of any moral authority that has remained silent or weak during these times in the Gaza genocide. So I just want to emphasize how important, how global this, uh, these events that are happening in our land are to every single one. Um, and that in order to seek true transformation, both on a legal, moral, spiritual uh, basis, we really need to learn from these catastrophes and seek radical change and revolution. Thank you, Samuel. It is incredible to think how, as you're saying, it's a travesty for the world. It made me think about how the very institutions to prevent war crimes, the UN, you know, the League of Nations, everything they worked so hard to create that says, hey, you can't bomb a church. Hey, you can't kill women and children. Hey, you can't bomb a hospital. Those are institutionalized as war crimes within the Geneva Convention. And yet, it's almost as if this episode of, of violence that Israel and the United States have inflicted on Palestine is like rendering all that stuff like meaningless and i'm sure it's not meaningless and and just recently south africa charged legally officially charged israel with war crimes and won and and and, and succeeded uh in that so i guess it's not completely useless that you know at least they're being charged but my point is that it it's it's sort of this unraveling of of so much work that was done to prevent this to happen and and ironically it's unraveling by the very populations that created it in the first place. You know, this was designed to prevent what happened to Jewish folks. And now the Israeli state, which purports to represent Jewish folks, but clearly doesn't, there's so many Jewish folks who are completely against what Israel is doing. Um, 
is the one committing the war crimes. Like, how crazy is this? Um, so anyways, I could go on and on, but let's go to our third question. Um, what does it mean, Omar, to be a Palestinian Christian today? You know, it doesn't mean much, and it means a lot. Part of it is that it's you have the responsibility. You know, you belong to a group of people that are going through a very difficult stage of their lives. We've, we as Palestinians and our communities have been for over 75 years now going through one catastrophe to another um, that has led with us being dispossessed and most of our population either in the diaspora or living in refugee camps. Not only this, not that we have only, been, not that also we have been dispossessed and we have become victims of global powers aligning themselves with um, with the Zionist movement. We also became demonized. So being Palestinian, whatever you do, you are um, you're a terrorist. You're uncivilized. You're inhumane. You're unable to communicate with. And that actually creates or prepares the ground for our further disposition and our our massacre. So we have a responsibility. And for a number of years or few decades, we Palestinians thought if we just improve how we speak and how we argue and back up our uh, our our statements with facts and get human rights organizations on our side and just continue shouting help 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 that somebody's going to come to rescue us and actually that hasn't been the case the world has even though that everybody has a camera everybody has a phone everybody is able to share on social media and make the world know that we're going through a genocide or through um we're facing war crimes help is not coming and i think maybe help is an illusion because when you seek the help of somebody else, you stop asking the help of yourself and uh, as a community and as an individual. You know, it is it's you become your safety, your your um, um, your rescue becomes dependent on an, on an outside force, not on you. And it's actually any resistance movement, any community that genuinely wants to be liberated, has to pay the price. If either, if you want to live fully um, um, with all dignity, um, you have to pay a price. Nothing comes for free. We have to make our our um, disposition, our um, uh, uh, we, we have to make it not, we have to make it very costly for anybody who dares to occupy us and to dehumanize us. Whether we do it using economics uh, sanctions or whether we do it using um, community resilience or whether we do it with armed resistance, communities have to they're not to wait for the repentance or for for a moral um, um, wake up call of your oppressor is just that's think that's wishful thinking. You have to liberate yourself. And people under occupation, people who are suffering, they need to come and decide. Do we want the moral approval of the world so that the, the world says, oh, Palestinians are nice people, are such a human people? Or do we want to live free? If you want to live free, you have to pay the price. 
sadly. That's the world that we live in. Um, not everybody is willing to pay the price. <laughs> not everybody is um, has the courage to live for to live uh, um, um, free. That's why freedom is such an important um, um, accomplishment for any for any nation. And that's why we celebrate the day that we all become free. You know, in Arabic we have a saying, and and it says, or it's a question, and it says, "What's better, a dead lion or a living dog?" You know, I don't want to like. You know, I like dogs, but in a way, do you want to live with full dignity? Die trying to get your full dignity, or do you want to live with little dignity? So, what's worth? What's life worth without dignity and freedom? And how much? Um, how much are you willing to pay for death? I mean, for us as Christians, Jesus died on the cross to give us abundant life. He 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 died on the cross for us. And are we willing to die also for our people? Um, and not to become collaborators or somehow to, to become comfortable with the injustice that we face. Right. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, Jesus is an example of that. He died precisely because he stood for so much. Um, in other words, you know, the Roman Empire wasn't going to stand and let him uh liberate so many people and and even his own religion you know the as a jewish man as a palestinian jewish man or however you want to frame it he was attacked as well for basically liberating people from the orthodox jewish order of his time which was really problematic you know um in any case i do want to point out that from my perspective the fact that you have to choose between dying with dignity or living without it is not your fault, right? Like, and I also want to say that it doesn't have to be that way. It's only that way because of Israel. It's only that way because of the USA. And that is the present situation that you have been born into. And that is true that, but that's, that's, but I don't want to normalize that as just how it has to be throughout time. And, um, and, 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 and I also want to point out the travesty that Israel has created that decision point for you, right? That is not a decision you of your own making. That's a, that's a forced decision. And, um, and it's not a fair decision to have to make. But it's a decision we have also in, you know, it's every group that does a revolution and revolts. So that's a decision people have to take even under their own regimes. Whether we're living in, you know, it is it's um, living in, under a dictatorship. It's do you want to live life in its abundance or abundant life? Or do you want just to live um, under the rules that the powerful dictate to you? So everybody faces these through dictatorships, whether they we, we, we're living in Iran or Saudi Arabia or Libya or Yemen, North Korea, um, the US, and, and there's so many dictatorships around the world. It's, it's a choice, actually. That's a choice for people. 
you the moment that you 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 decide to say that I deserve better, I deserve I am no one is better than me and I'm not better than anyone, that becomes a choice that you need to be, to know that you have to pay a price for it. Because there's many people who will subjugate you to be a lesser being. That's that's how it is. There's people who want to abuse people. Sadly, there is a coyote. I, again, you know, it is it's, there's people who are not we as human beings have not matured um, enough. Um, we haven't really embraced um, God or the Creator. We want life and its abundance for us, but not for everybody around us. This is true, and and I think even though as Americans we might feel like we're not in a dictatorship, there are different types of things dictating our lives. Even if all you take is the food industry the way that food is controlled in the US, the way all of our tax dollars subsidize these just a few corporations who create all the corn, all the wheat, all the soy, all the rice, which is what half the world's diet is, corn, wheat, soy, rice. You know, that's just a few crops feed half the world's caloric intake. Anyways, even if we were just to liberate ourselves from our foods, we would pay a price, right? Because these corporations are not going to let us be free without a fight, you know? And so I, I do agree. And so it's how you fight and how you prepare to fight and how you strategize the fight that I think determines whether you will win or not, uh, which varies from case to case. So Samuel, I'll go to you. What does it mean to be a Christian Palestinian today? It's uh, a huge feeling is of betrayal. Uh, a betrayal of those who claim to be in support of, of my community and myself, those who, who even represent and lead my community. Um, I, I feel a huge sense of betrayal uh, as though I'm not existent, also being not seen. Um, and uh, we, as a Palestinian Christian community, we are facing an an existential crisis within our presence in Gaza. Gaza has a rich Palestinian Christian tradition, history, heritage, community that is. Um, it's it, we're not sure what is going to happen to them and to those traditions and saints and heritage. Um, I feel as though I'm asking the same questions as my ancestors did during their time, uh, specifically also Sabil's founders. Uh, I feel like we're, we are having the same conversations. Um, so to a certain time, I was mentally ready for displacement. Um, so these are so, a huge feeling that I have on a day daily basis. At the same time, the situation has allowed me to connect with my Palestinian Christian, and I say Palestinian Christian tradition. When I read the Bible, I am connecting to my ancestors in a way that I did not before. When I read the Christmas story, the nativity story, where Christ was born amidst massacres, 
I connect to the Christmas story in a way that I haven't felt before. And it's a physical, it, there's a, almost a, a body reaction to it. Um, and that goes to the same of how I view Christ, how I view my grandparents, how I view my parents, how I view key figures within my history, within the Palestinian Christian history. So there's a, a different sense of connection that I have um, to some of the traditions, cultures, um, and and knowledge. It's it's a, it's almost a sense of uh, connecting to a uh, a knowledge, a feeling how my grandfather, to a certain extent, must have felt in 1948. Um, we're in deep mourning, in deep grief, grief, uh, trauma. Um, it it is a continuous trauma that we are in. Uh, there's a faith crisis within our, you know, where are you, God? Uh, you know, God. Uh, Jesus said, God, God, why have you forsaken me on the cross when he was suffering? Um, I feel the same way. Or it speaks to me in a, in a, in a very similar way. Um, so that it, that's for me what it means right now to be Palestinian Christian. It's to feel this this overwhelming sense of trauma, anguish, sadness, but at the same time that connects deeply uh, to my ancestors, both physical and spiritual. At the same time, um, I'd like to connect to that conversation about the lion and the dog. I don't see myself as a victim um, or others in my community. Of course, we are under settler colonization. We are under brutal, brutal occupation and, and control. But um, I feel more connected in being a human and being understanding what relationships means, understanding myself to God. Sadly, on, on a, it has it had to come to this. Um, but I also view people who are walking around nonchalantly, listening to music, eating food, paying taxes to governments that are funding massacres, not having a connection to the land, to the food they eat. I view them with great pity. And I view also people who are seeing on the news what's going on in Gaza and Sudan and Congo and all around the world and have a deep spiritual sickness not to feel moved. That's also the people that I really feel sorry to. Um, and, and I feel as though at the work of Sabil and being a part of the Palestinian Christian community, we, we have that sort of lens um, where we are, we can either decide like Omar, it's a very black and white, we have these choices. Um, and that kind of image or, or understanding of, of, of that paradigm of where you can just be, you can just not care about the world and care about very superficial um, things has been shattered. Um, so it's just that it, being Palestinian Christian now is like being Palestinian Christian always and will, I think continue to be. And it's 
having multiple emotions and feelings that contradict one another at the same time. I know what you mean. I often think of, we're not the victim. The oppressor is the deepest victim in the sense that they've lost their connection to compassion and and care and generosity and respect and love. And and, and I, I would almost rather be shot than shoot someone. Because if you get shot, your body dies or your body's injured. But if you shoot someone, your soul dies or your soul is injured. And that is such a... Ch- and I know people say, well, self-defense and this and that. So I don't want to get too in the weeds with that, but to be, to shoot, to pull the trigger, to get to a point in your life where you're pulling a trigger on another being, on another human. Um, yeah, I, I see what you mean. The bankruptcy of the soul and, um, and, and yeah, I mean, there's so much I could say. I want to, I want to get to this last question and then maybe, um, and then maybe see where we go from there. Um, what are the greatest actions the world and specifically Americans can take now to stand behind you and your people? And I'll go to you first, Omar. I mean, it's the biggest part for us as Palestinians is that the U.S. supports Israel fully um, unconditionally. And because of the U.S., a superpower, the U.S. is able to veto any decision that is done through the General Assembly or through the United Nations. So we as human beings in the world after World War II decided to create a global, a, a, a global order or a world order where all countries abide or are equal in front of the law. The U.S. being the most powerful is saying, saying, yeah, but my me as a country and my best friend Israel cannot be held accountable to the law. That's our problem. If the U.S. and and when the, you you make exceptions for people to abide by the law and the law doesn't apply on everyone, most people will come and say, this is a stupid law. This is not a fair law. And everybody goes back to living in the Wild West where everybody picks up their guns and everybody says, we need to be violent and we need to make sure that it's we're able to fight back. So the U.S., and I don't think that's in the interest of the U.S. Because in the U.S., if people do not like the behaviors of Russia invading countries or are afraid that that China will go into Taiwan and invade another country or with so many different countries just acting um, um, unlawfully, then the U.S. shouldn't also act unlawfully or give support for other governments to, to work unlawfully. We are interested in living in the 21st century with less number of wars and bloodshed. I believe we're able to to overcome and to deal with our challenges as human beings without the need for violence and more death. The U.S., you have many problems in the U.S. You're, You're a superpower, you have lots of resources, 
but you also have serious problems. You have problems with people who are homeless. You have problems with people who are trying to pay um, uh, student loans. You have people who are uh, families who are barely making it, um, making ends meet, single mothers. You have so many problems in the US. Deal with your problems and help people solve their problems around the world. Don't start new problems. Your money should be spent um, in different places. Do you think there's, I mean, do you think there's something we could do as as American citizens? I mean, you, we could do a tax strike where we just simply don't pay taxes until America agrees to stop, you know, um, funding war crimes. Um, we could obviously vote for certain people based. I think I think the majority of Americans want. Uh, a ceasefire last time I checked, it was like 60% or something. Um, but have you heard of any spe specific things that American citizens can do to, to support? I mean, definitely. I mean, it is, it's, if we take, I take Jesus as my role model and Jesus, there was a decision to crucify Jesus, not because he was saying, love your neighbor or, or, you know, it is it's love God or or help people who are in need. When he went and he disturbed the financial corruption in the temple, when he went and he said, I refuse to allow people being um, being exploited financially. When he challenged the economic structures, he became the enemy of the state, the enemy of religious leaders, and he got um, crucified. Definitely follow the money. Wherever the companies that are complicit with selling arms, with the people who are making money out of conflicts, everybody should divest from these companies. If you are investing in these companies, or if you are buying, if um, look up what are their products and boycott them. And if the government, this is how they're spending um, spending your tax money. Find creative ways how to um, make the, um, to make it more difficult for your government to take um, your resources. It's the U.S. Uh, or governments, corrupt governments. They make problems. They make you pay to get into trouble, and then they make you pay to get out of trouble. You have better things to do as uh, as citizens. You have you have your needs. Take care of them. Hmm. I've been thinking more and more about how the tax base is what makes America an empire and a um an an oligarchy and a um a, an enslaving system. Um because I think in America we think, oh, we're a free country. We can watch football and eat hamburgers and da da da. And that's true. However, the more money we make as citizens, the more money is available for tax dollars. So in other words, we as Americans, we're like little batteries. Everyone who works fuels the tax system, this huge chunk of money that people in Washington, D.C. have very cleverly found ways to put all, a large majority of those tax dollars into big pharmaceuticals into food corporations, into arms dealers, weapons dealers. And so even though some of the money of our tax dollars goes to schools 
goes to roads, goes to social security, goes to, well, I would say healthcare, but really that just funnels back into big pharmaceutical companies. But in any case, my point is the corporations that benefit from our tax dollars, which the arms industry and the military is the largest, is directly dependent on us. Every single, like you said, 300 million Americas, Americans, every single one of us who generates an income simultaneously generates a revenue stream for these companies. And so we are like little batteries fueling a system of militarism. We are the ones who hold all the power then. And so if we were to, and this is exactly how America was created, was all of the English colonists were paying taxes to the British. And one day they said, we don't want to pay taxes to you. And the British said, oh yeah, well, let's go to war because you have to pay taxes to us because that's why you're there is to give me money. We went to war and we were liberated from the British crown. And we're so proud of that, right? Oh, we as Americans were liberated from the British crown because we didn't want to pay unfair taxes that they weren't even using well. Well, it's 2024 and we're in the same darn situation, except for now, it's not the British empire that is stealing our taxes and our labor and our, our life source and our life energy. It's the military. (laughs) that the vast majority of us don't agree with. So anyway, sorry, I had to go on that tangent there, but I just want American listeners to understand we are the fuel. We are the juice that keeps the American military going. Our every paycheck we get, and we work so hard to get a degree, to get a good job, and people who make more money, they're paying just more taxes. And so it's just so, so important for us as Americans to realize we have slowly become in a very sad situation where we are the very blood. Our everyday going to work is the blood of the U.S. military, which wreaks havoc around the world and the Israeli military. So anyways, okay, I'm done with my tangent. Going to you, Samuel, what are the greatest actions the world and specifically Americans can take now to stand behind you and your people? Uh, firstly, although um, I am Palestinian Christian and I am in Jerusalem and I am living under uh, current settler colonization, I would point you towards the Gazan journalists and people for what to do. They can tell you, they should have the stage and directing the global community, specifically those in the United States, North America, to tell you what to do. So I have my ideas, but first of all, they need to have the platform. I am speaking. I'm speaking right now in a podcast. Um, I have running water. I have electricity. We don't know to the full extent what is happening there in Gaza. They are the ones who are enduring it, experiencing it. They should have the ownership in deciding uh, the narrative. And I think the journalists who have um, are doing so, and I would point you towards them. Um, I can echo what they're saying, which is ceasefire. Um, 
if you're asking ways how of boy of doing boycotts of revolting uh, against taxes reform I, I i'm i can't do the thinking for you i have enough things on my mind right now in palestine it's your context you know it better than me you know that we're calling for ceasefire we're calling for the implementation of international law we're calling for uh uh injustice to be accountable it's up to you now to decide how to do it within your context i am living in jerusalem just uh getting to work and back is a hassle in itself and 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 having to think through how we are operating in our daily lives is enough um and i would say that when south africa uh was fighting against the apartheid uh in in the 90s we didn't go to south africans and say help us think what should we do no you did what they asked within your context we can't do the thinking for you um so i just like to point that out having said that uh i see throughout my experience uh that there is a connection between those who have been oppressed supporting uh indigenous black uh women the working class we're all linked together in the system of oppression so targeting those areas and like you were going uh, uh and saying about the, the taxes and and the military um industry that's connected to israel so fighting that is fighting our cause um and i think we need to understand that our causes are connected we're one family um so fighting for um rights black lives matter is palestinian lives matter um fighting against capitalism is fighting against settler zionism um so i think those are kind of key understandings and actions that um the world can do and and, and specifically america as the heart of the empire um lastly i would always um recommend come and visit palestine whenever possible come visit us i mean you can you you mentioned how much that visit impacted you and st- and continues to stay with you i think there's one thing reading a book there's one thing um reading and listening to the news and hearing our stories there's another thing tasting our food sitting down with us being still with us uh seeing the eyes of someone uh connecting with someone uh, on a on a basis where you can hug um seeing the the beauty of our land uh as well as the suffering so i would always recommend listening to gaza's voices the journalists the people who are who are right now suffering more than than us right now and, and should have uh ownership in what should be done think for yourself how you can implement the calls that palestinians have been trying to do which is cease fire implementation of international law um accountability for injustice three re- join your solidarity movement wherever you are for all those who are oppressed we're all in it together
And then lastly, come and visit us, come and sit with us. Um, and I think your lives will be changed. And we, one of the greatest honors we have is hospitality. Um, and I think that can allow you to think of what action you want to do and hear our narrative and, and feel our narrative, not only hear, but feel our narrative, which will um, give you some idea of what you can do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, when I went to Palestine the f for the first and only time I went, it was, um, when was that, Omar? Maybe five years ago, I don't know. Um, it wasn't too long ago. Um, but I, it was very fascinating. When I got back home, I said, I need to do something. And I had just got done organizing for Standing Rock where I organized a national day of action for Standing Rock, which was, we had hundreds of communities act. So I was familiar with national level organizing. And so I thought, okay, cool. I'll just do this with Palestine. And it was so fascinating. I filmed my call to action and the SD card that I filmed it on, you know, the, the little file holder, it was gone. It erased. And I thought, Oh shoot, that's weird. I filmed it a second time and it was gone again. <laughs> and I'm not blaming anyone. I don't know what that was about, but part of me wonders if it wasn't my time to do that. Because back then, five years ago, if you spoke out for Palestine, they put a big target on you here in the United States. And they still do today, but it's not as easy because everyone is chanting ceasefire. Everyone is chanting free, free Palestine. So today, January 2024, is much safer to be a national leader for Palestine in the United States than I think it was five years ago. Um, when I, used to, I have 60,000 Facebook followers. I used to have thousands and thousands of reactions on my Facebook posts. The day that I made a very influential Facebook post about Palestine is the day I was shadow banned. My entire my entire Facebook reach just plummeted, and it's never really um, revitalized itself. And that's okay, like you said, Omar. You pay a price. <laughs> you want to you want to tell the truth. You pay a price. Um, but imagine, like, if I had done national organizing. But what I wanted to do back then was. May 15th is Nakba day, right? May 15th is a day that Israel celebrates independence and we celebrate the destruction, murder, displacement, relocation of men, women, and children, the armed displacement um, in 1948 when, when, um, when Palestinians were brutally forced off of their lands. Um, without any treaty, without any legal conversation, without anything proper. What if we around the United States on May 15th um, do, do some kind of action at our local government levels? All of our senators, all of our United States, all of our representatives in Washington, D.C., they need to hear our voices and we need to go straight to their offices. And so that was my idea back five years ago. And I had this whole call to action, this whole idea, and it kept getting, I don't know, there was, it just stuff kept going wrong and it just didn't happen. And um, I don't know why, but I also want to say that there's something about Palestine that is so heartbreaking that I have to admit this thing is that when I went there, 
I had energy to help, but when I got those setbacks and my files got deleted twice, um, I, I sort of went into paralysis. I knew you guys were suffering. I knew the situation was terrible. Even before October 7th, it was terrible. But it, the, the amount of suffering I saw with you, Omar, was so immense that I became somewhat paralyzed of like, what can I do? And I think that paralysis is something that we have to fight as Americans, as anyone, because we watch on Instagram bodies of children. We watch on TikTok um, bodies of women. We walk, watch on, on Facebook people being crying out for their family. We see the numbers climbing and we think it's enough to just share a video right? And, and that does helpful. But I think there's something um, wrong about just sharing the video and thinking that we've done enough. Um, it's very tempting, right? Because we have this fear of like, gosh, this problem's so immense. I'm such a small person. I'm scared. I'm just going to share this video and pretend like that's my, that's my duty. <laughs> I'll boycott Starbucks and share these videos and but I think we can do more as Americans, and I think we should hold ourselves to higher standards than that. I think we can go to these offices. Uh, we can launch national um, visitations to our senators and our House of Representatives so that Congress itself, we are in the ear of everybody in the U.S. Congress. I don't know if that will help, but I think it would do a lot more than sharing these videos and boycotting Starbucks. We have to be in their faces right now. Um, and so for whatever that's worth, I think that's what we can do as Americans. Um, thank you both so much for your time. Um, I know even to do this interview is a lot of energy and I hope that it in some small way lets you know that I'm, that I'm standing beside you in <laughs> what little ways that I can. And I just want to thank you both so much for taking the time in the extraordinary situation that y'all are in, which is the same situation I imagine my ancestors were in, in the 1500s, 1600s, when they estimate that 98% of indigenous peoples were wiped out within the first few hundred years of contact. And so I'm, I'm try I can only imagine how, how many different human populations have had to kind of be in the situation that you're in where it's just a full on assault on you and your people. And you have to um, stand with as much dignity and as much faith as you can in the midst of that dark time. And so just know for whatever it's worth, I'm standing beside you. And I know everyone listening is standing beside you as well. And, and, and giving you hope or giving you um, fuel, giving you support, um, giving you the whatever energy we can. Uh, as we stand behind you. So um, if there's any last words you want to share before we close, Omar, please feel free to share. I mean, I mean, hope, I've never liked the word hope. Sounds just too, like, uh, too Western for me. Or it's like, it's hope is when you're, you're at the end of um, a basketball game and you're losing and, you know, there's a small chance for for your team just to catch up and then you say do you have hope and so on so it's like hope i feel it is for the underdog you know 
for the people who are and and honestly me and my people i don't think that we feel the underdogs at the moment we feel you know it is our rights are being violated but we are but we have faith and if you meet with the people our younger generations the people even in gaza and so on and you look into their eyes and you know it is you ask them are you confident that you will win and they say yes we have faith that we will win and that gives us hope that gives us hope is that we are not um that we will overcome we're confident that we are overcome and that's faith when you believe even if it sounds it's against all odds and it's impossible but yet the people believe it the people will make it through and if you speak with the israeli politicians with the american politicians within within um you know it's you feel that they're genuinely afraid they are although despite their might and their power and all of what um the the crimes that they are committing and with the weapons that they control yet you feel that they are a little bit not or they're not at all confident of their victory and they have no hope in a way they're trying their best but they don't have hope they're relying on um they're relying on us losing hope so yes i am confident and um, our people are confident and we are we are liberating the streets of the world they can take us out of facebook they can limit our outreach on on twitter x they can make us less popular on instagram they can make your life very difficult on youtube but they, it it's impossible to ignore the hundreds of millions of people or the billions of people who are marching in all of the streets around the world saying you know free free palestine and who know who is the victim and who is the um oppressor and it's only just a matter of time um until we overcome all of the sources of evil Thank you, Omar. Uh, Samuel, any final words before we close? Yeah, uh, just to reiterate what uh, Omar says, uh, they're fearful and all empires fall and all countries, institutions, who empires that are based on injustice uh, are not sustainable. Uh, that's just how also the world worked um, in nature. Um, for those who I think will not see the day of liberation, which I think Omar and myself might never see Palestine be liberate, liberated, um, being in resistance, is it in itself an end is in in itself uh living a life of love which rejects any structures and systems which dehumanize us and others and i think that's a life worth living um i i struggle to to with those questions and and in general to articulate myself um but i think something that's been really helpful is uh, a form of spirituality which is prayer um and at sabil we have 
we produce weekly uh, prayers from Palestine. Uh, and I guess I will read you one prayer for closing, and I'll I'll leave it with that. Um, and you're welcome to join with us with our prayers uh, at Sabir. God of love, it is hard to mourn while our suffering is increasing every day. We have been enduring continuous trauma for generations. We know that you see and feel the pains of oppression with us. Lord, comfort the bereaved families as they mourn their loss and help them with their needs. Help us with our selfishness and fear. May we not ask what will happen to us if we do not act, but what will happen to the oppressed, to the vulnerable, if we remain complicit. Thank you for that beautiful prayer. And for calling us all into, into that prayer. And uh, may all beings, regardless of their religion or background, may all beings feel feel that love, give that love, and 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 be safe, no matter who we are. Um, we're we're all we're all needing forgiveness. We're all needing safety. We're all needing that rootedness in in our Mother Earth. Um, so thank you both so much for your time, and please visit. Um, Sabil uh, online at um, Sabil, let's see, here we go, right here, Sabil.org, S A B as in boy, E E L.org, um, to stay connected with Omar, Samuel, and their colleagues. Thank you all for listening and continue to walk forward with hope, determination, and action. Thank you.